each night of, of a week of meetings. And uh, Carl Heatwall from South Carolina is our speaker. I, uh, I, my friendship with Carl goes quite a few years back. Uh, we went to Rosedale for a term together. This would have been maybe 1976 or something, 75. And uh, I have a, I have a, this memory of this young man, serious, serious young man with a, a wonderful dry sense of humor, which he still has. And, uh, but then we didn't see each other for quite a few years, I don't think. Maybe, maybe connected at, at, a, at, a, at a program down at Heritage just a few years back. And so it was really good to catch up again on what all has happened in between. <laughs> Carl spent some time in the north, found his wife up there, Henry Hostetler's daughter. And uh, another memory is that he and his very good friend, uh, Daryl Brubaker, were there at Rosedale uh, that term. And Daryl just a few years ago passed away. And, and uh, so, so it's been good to know him these years, and especially in just the last couple, the last few, better. Well, we just prayed that uh, God's Holy Spirit would lead us all the way through life and all the way to heaven, and uh, we certainly want him to lead us this week and want him to empower uh, Carl for preaching and preparing his messages this week. I thought of a few verses in Colossians. One, this is a prayer, and Apostle Paul prayed it for the Colossian Christians, and so we can be sure that this is God's will for us, that, that uh, God wants to work this in our lives. This is Colossians 1. I'll begin, break in, in a little bit into verse 9. Uh, apostle prays, I do not cease to pray for you and desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us in the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption, redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sin. And then it goes on to describe our wonderful Savior, the Son of God. I believe uh, I'm just going to pray this. Some of this is a prayer. Let's stand together to pray. Father, I pray that we would be filled with the knowledge of your will and that we would uh, learn to walk, and you would enable us to walk in a, a way that's worthy of our calling in you. Lord, that we would learn to live every day in a way that really pleases you, that would, we would understand your will for our life, 
and that we would become really fruitful in every good work. Lord, that we would learn to know you better and better. And I pray that we would be strengthened, that we would experience your glorious power in our lives. Father, thank you that we uh, are able to participate in the wonderful inheritance that you have in store for us. Thank you for delivering us from the power of darkness and translating us up into your kingdom. Thank you for the redemption that we have through the blood of Christ. Thank you for forgiving our sins. And Father, I pray that throughout this week that we would just learn to know you better and better and we would learn to know your will for our lives better and better and that we would experience your power and we would become more fruitful um, relating to our families and to our brothers and sisters in the church and to all our acquaintances that we would really bear spirit fruit that would enhance the gospel want and make others want to to come to Christ so we pray you'd bless us this week and meet with us each evening I pray it in Christ's name amen okay Charles is going to lead us another song and then we'll give the, the rest of the evening to Carl there's a fountain free tis for you and me let us haste oh haste to the brink tis the fount of love from the source above and he bids us all freely drink
Well, I'd like to say that it's a privilege and an honor to be here. In Proverbs chapter 13, verse 12, it says that hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. You know, it's springtime here in Virginia. We had springtime a few weeks back. But you know, those short, dark days of winter are past, and the brightness of each new spring morning, the flowers, new flowers, and new leaves, and new birds, and the little baby animals remind us that spring is here. And it also reminds us of the time when Jesus came into our life and made our life new. Perhaps you still feel that newness. The time when you met Jesus. When you felt that your sins were forgiven. And that heaviness and those dark, short days of winter, spiritual winter, were over. Spring and new life in Jesus bring us hope. And everybody needs a little hope. Just a short introduction. I was born in Harrisonburg, Virginia. In um, 1973, my parents were asked to move to the lower part of South Carolina to help start a church. That was 43 years ago. Uh, after Bible school that Sonny talked about, I went into voluntary service at Red Lake, Ontario with what was then called the old Northern Light Gospel Mission. And you know, Canadians are my favorite people. I married one. Uh, my wife is Canadian. Uh, her name is Grace. And Lord willing, she'll be here at the end of the week. We have four living children. All are married now. A daughter in Mississippi and the three sons have all come home and we farm together. And that can be a challenge. I ask that you pray for these meetings, for each other, for myself, and that I would be a faithful servant and useful in his service. You know the theme song that I had, my heart is stirred every time we sing that, to realize that there's a fountain for each one of us, you and I, it's for everybody, and it's been made available to us, and I want that song to become real to each one of us this week. So whoever's in charge of leading, if you just lead that song after the devotional. Hopefully you and I can remember the time and the place where we met Jesus. And it was there that we afterwards sealed our commitment with water baptism. And if you can't, you should. I want to spend a little time this evening going back and reviewing and reaffirming our commitment and our conversion to God. And I want you to check and see if your commitment is still good. It not only makes a huge difference in whether you still enjoy your Christian life, it makes a difference for your eternal destiny. Those of you who've been baptized, I think, you can go back in your mind and remember and your own experience, the setting, maybe the, the minister who baptized you or those <clears throat> who you were baptized with. 
my mind goes back to my baptism. And that was 44 years ago. 46 years ago. And I was in a large instruction, a large class of instruction, um, ages ranging from 10 to maybe 18. There was some old order girls there uh, who had made first-time commitments as, as older teens. My conversion and baptism was not in my home church. It was a neighboring church uh, close to the farm that I grew up on, and after a time of evangelistic meetings, I felt God lay his hand on my heart, and I responded. And so when they had their instruction class for new Christians, I was invited to attend, and I remember riding my bicycle or walking to that church on Wednesday evening. And the class was taught, some of you may remember, James T. Shank and Lloyd Horse, and they didn't fool around. Uh, they, they taught it to us, all of it. We probably needed it. But I want to tell you that not a baptism has gone by in all of my years since that I'm not reminded of those vows that I made. When I listen to these young people say those vows and I think back to my vows. And sad to say there's been times I haven't kept them. I'm sorry. I'm ashamed. It wasn't God's fault. It was me who didn't keep them the way I should have. It was never God's fault. I have failed. And if I had kept them as earnestly as I had committed on bended knee, I would have saved myself a lot of trouble. Now, you know, in uh, the Anabaptist faith, there's probably several different forms of versions of baptismal vows, I imagine Brother Leon has a little black book, right? And, um, <clears throat> but I went on the internet and uh, typed in baptismal vows and it pulled up the baptismal vows for Washington County, Maryland, and Franklin County, Pennsylvania, Mennonites. I wouldn't even thought they'd use the internet, let alone put their baptismal vows on, but here they are. And, um, Number five, are you truly so sorry for your past sins and are you willing to renounce Satan, the world, and all the works of darkness and your own carnal and sinful desires? That one just hit me between the eyes. Are you willing to forsake all that stuff? That's where it makes a difference. All these other things sound nice, but are you willing to forsake the things that you used to enjoy, the things that tend to suck you down? <clears throat> In all of my years of trying to faithfully live out the message of the gospel and walk in obedience to scriptural teaching, that vow has stopped me short and reminded me of my commitments that I have made before God and these witnesses to do the right thing, to have that courage. And remember, what did I promise? And especially, it was helpful in my late teen and early 20 years. Vows are to be taken seriously. We have two places, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 21, 
In Ecclesiastes 5, verse 4, the verses are very similar. It says something like this. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vows. Don't promise something you don't intend to keep. <clears throat> Recently, I wrote a sermon um, for at home that had to do with the need to lead, a place for strong leadership in our churches, homes, and communities. And I used the character of Noah. And Noah has become a favorite of mine. I want to read you one verse. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. <clears throat> and this is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Now, I don't know if Noah made baptismal vows. I doubt it. But he made some vows. Or he wouldn't have been able to have this written about him. That Noah was righteous. He was blameless among the people of his time. Now, we know the people of his time were pretty sorry. Just like ours. <clears throat> but it says he walked with God. When you and I made our vows and made those commitments, did it make that kind of an effort, that concentrated of a commitment in our lives? A few years ago, well, it's been longer than I think, when our daughter was a little girl, um, she and her friends were invited to our neighbors to a sleepover. And, and these neighbors were not of the Anabaptist persuasion. They were Baptist people. And, you know how you tell your children when they go away, you know, you kind of prime them to behave and things they're supposed to do. And, and then after they come home, you have this debriefing session around the supper table. You know, what did you eat and who all was there? Did you have a good time? And did you remember to say thank you? And you, you know the routine. And after she answered all of our questions, she says, you know, um, her little friend, I forget her name, she told me, she says, my daddy said that you all take your religion way too seriously. And I thought, hmm. Oh. And I wondered, is that a compliment or a put down? You know, over the years, I've, I've thought about this thing. You know, now 20 years later, I've watched how his children growed up. And... Um, None of them are with their original partners. And uh, some of them are divorced and remarried, and some are just single again. And um, I'm sure that the, my daughter's little friend's daddy had no idea that when he talked about his neighbors that it would get passed around. But I'm glad he felt that way because I can look back and see that we took our religion very seriously we tried, and he thought we took it too seriously. But I bet he wishes he could do it over again. His family went to seed. He did not take his religion seriously enough. And while the scriptures are very clear that it does no one any good to be just merely religious, 
and that we can never take our Christian commitment that our loyalties to Christ and our sacred vows anyway but seriously. James chapter 1 verse 27 says, Religion that our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in distress and to keep oneself from being polluted in the world. That's pure religion. Well, then in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 16, it tells us what phony religion is. It refers to being over-religious, having to do with form and pomp and show. Someone has said that religion and traditions are easy to hide behind, where we learn to perform up to certain expectations, but the holiness and right living have nothing to hide. We have nothing to hide if we live circumspectly, if we live right. Colossians 2, 20 to 23. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you to submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Um, I can wear the right clothes but be immoral and impure in my heart. It is so important that your heart is right and you wear the right clothes. I don't want to get accused of not uh, of knocking the clothes now. I, you know, can't be a Mennonite preacher. The, we'll talk about some of this stuff along and along, but um, anyway. <clears throat> I want to give you an example. When my wife and I lived on the reservation, Sandy Lake, Ontario, from time to time I, I'd notice that some of these native ladies would come to church without their veilings on. And I thought, oh, I mean, don't they get it? I mean, how can this be? You know, maybe we need some more teaching. Maybe they just don't understand the significance and the importance of a Christian lady wearing her veiling. You know, this headship thing and... I just didn't know what my responsibility was, maybe. But it later became aware to me that these ladies were honest. They weren't playing church. They didn't know how to perform. If they weren't right with God, if they uh, weren't living in spiritual victory, if they weren't walking close to God, um, they'd take their veilings off. They didn't have anything to hide. If they didn't know that, that you could be a nagger and whine at your husband and be insubmissive in God's order or lose interest in spiritual things and still wear your veiling and hide all that. They hadn't learned that yet. They just took them off. And then when they got right with God, they put their veilings back on. We don't do it that way, do we? We've learned to perform whether we're right inside or not. And so that's the advantage sometimes of being a first-generation Christian. You haven't learned how to perform. I don't know where we learn these things. I guess it's the old sinful nature. We get, the devil teaches us how to do it. 
That's just one example. It is very easy to keep on doing the right things for all the wrong reasons. Now, I want to share some examples that I hope you will find helpful um, as you think about the start that you had in your Christian life. Uh, for those of you who are young people, you can never really appreciate it until you have children, the value and the place of having godly parents. Uh, you didn't choose your parents. We, none of us had that privilege. But if you were born in a home with godly parents, you have an advantage in every way. You can never put a value on that. The influence that they have in your life will save you so much trouble. Being part of a disciplined church family is next. It's right up there with being born into a Christian home. To be part of a church family that cares about your soul, who cares about your eternal destiny, who cares about your spiritual well-being, most churches don't care. Trust me, I know. 2 Timothy 2.15 is a familiar verse. Study to show yourself approved unto God. Study takes time. Study takes commitment. I want to talk about that Wednesday night. How can we learn to meet God's approval? It says we need to study. James 5.39. Search the scriptures. For in them ye think that you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And then in verse 40, the next, very next verse, it says, Yet you refuse to come to me and have life. These verses show us that scriptural knowledge and study alone will not in themselves merit God's approval. In John 14, If you love me, you will obey what I command. That's verse 15. And then further down, verse 23 through 24, and Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And he who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own, and they belong to the Father who sent me. God's approval comes from obedience. It doesn't come from performance. It comes from obedience. I'd like to also suggest that to meet God's approval, we must know and follow the life of Christ. And for that to happen, we need to study. Well, how do we find God's approval? I mentioned study and obedience. You know, when we want someone's approval, we, we study them. We study their character. Uh, I don't really know who to pick on here besides Charles. And uh, I know Charles. And Charles goes to Hillsville once in a while to study somebody. He wants to learn how to gain her approval, right? You don't go there to get her or her dad's disapproval. No. I had a boy who married outside of his culture. This is not a slam at Pennsylvania. 
but he met a girl in Nicaragua from Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. And someone told me it would be easier for him to marry a Nicaraguan girl and move her to South Carolina than it would be for him to marry a Lancaster County girl and move her to South Carolina. And I think he's kinda on target. But anyway. Can a young lady from up north and a man from an agrarian background learn to love a southern farm boy? She had no agrarian background. She's a city girl. Can she learn to love a southern farm boy with these dirty clothes, animal smells, and whose heart ticks to the rhythm of cows? And if it don't, it should. And then can my son Joel, can he be see beyond the pretty face and the twinkling eyes? You know, that's, that's always what gets us. That's what melts a man's heart into a puddle, those, those eyes. Can he see a soul in a heart of one who makes him want to be better than he can be? To provide protection, food and shelter and spiritual leadership and commit to die trying. Charles, is that what you're doing? I know you are. And so how far and to what extremes are you willing to study, to know, to gain God's approval? I want to give you an illustration. Uh, this is what the Native Americans in uh, northern Canada call a Tikkanagan. Um, many native cultures had some type of a, an apparatus to carry their babies in, and they, they had different names for them, but a, a cradle board or something of that nature. My wife and I had a need. We were expecting a baby. And the winters were long and hard, and we traveled by boat, snow machine, or on foot. And how do you tote a baby around? I've seen a lady come out of this room with a little plastic thing. And it might be cool for around here, but it wouldn't work up there. You can't put enough blankets in it. And I don't know if you could strap that thing on a snow machine or not. And it don't fit on your back very good. And in a boat, it would soon be its own boat. Well... <clears throat> We studied and we observed what the native people were doing. You know, they'd been at this for thousands of years, ever since they walked across from the Bering Strait, or however they got to America. And um, they'd figured out a plan, and we studied it. Native couples were using a moose hide, whatchamacallit, on a spruce board for thousands of years. It must meet their approval. And so I went to the local Tikkanagan maker. His name was Fred Ray. And he didn't speak any English. He was an elderly man at that time. And I watched him several days. I'd go watch him make Tikkanagans. Each village has their own style, their own designs. You can tell where the Tikkanagan is from. Oh, that's a Deer Lake. That's a North Spirit Lake. That's a Sandy Lake or Bearskin Lake because the, the 
the designs up here are just like written words. The designs are specific to each village. Well, I wanted this thing to look like a sandy lake, Tikkanagan. I studied. I watched. I took mental notes. I needed a spruce board. It was light than what was available. No serious native would have used plywood, so neither would I. I had a friend, Simeon Kakipitum, and so he helped me to go and search for a log. And you know that verse in Psalm 1 about the tree that grows by the water and its root is down? Well, that's what we did. In Sandy Lake, there's not a lot of topsoil, but along the edge of the river and the lakes, the trees go much bigger. And we went several hours to the west end, east end of Sandy Lake, up the Stain River, headed towards Muskrat Dam. And I found a spruce tree that for Northern Ontario was huge. It was probably two feet across the stump. And up there, a tree that's a foot across the stump is probably 150 or 200 years old. They don't grow fast with a short summer. And we cut the tree and let it fall in the river and limbed it as best as we could in the water. And then we spent a whole day dragging it by boat back to my house. <coughs> when we got it home, after many hours, we winched it up out of the water, up the bank to the sawmill. It needed to be a wide board from the heart of the log so it wouldn't warp. And this is one board. It's not several glued together. I didn't have any power tools. The native people didn't either. So there wouldn't be any planer. Just a hand plane, a sanding block, a coping saw, and a knife. And I would go back to the Tikkanagan maker. I wanted to see his designs. And finally, when I had the board made, I took it back, and he took his patterns, and he drew the design to be carved. And I went home, and I carved. I sanded and painted and finally varnished. And it was ready to turn over to the ladies. Grace needed blankets for the new baby. So she went to the store and she got some fabric, cotton for the summer, flannel for the winter. That's what the native lady said you needed. That's what she would do. We studied from them. And she picked out the colors of the beads, the embroidery thread, and the moose hide. The moose hide was a moose that I had shot. And a lady from church, known for her quality work, did the beading and the stitching. We didn't use old curtains, a worn-out garment, and we didn't pick a lady who did sloppy work. When Gideon arrived at the beginning of winter, the Tikkanagan was ready. The Tikkanagan man approved. The native ladies approved. It was a labor of love, and it was Gideon's first home. He spent many months in it. I could never sell it. I could give it away, but I could never sell it. Do you and I make every effort to live for the approval of God?
Do you remember the pressures that you faced as a new and young Christian? And to those of you who are young in your Christian life this evening, I want you to know that pressure, peer pressure, and I probably want to talk about that one night, can be huge. It can be destructive. The need to feel acceptance from your peers and your friends, wanting to fit in, to blend in with the crowd, can blow you off course. People have a tendency to wear down from going against the flow for a long time. Even the strongest, most devout can wear down when they have to stand against the tide for too long. That is why it is so important that in your social needs are met by friends that will help encourage you in holy living. The contacts that we need are with those who are working and serving the same God, going the same way. Your social contacts should be those who influence you for good, for those who influence you for eternity. Your parents help you make those contacts when you're young and those friendships, they mean it for your good. Um, your contacts with those who are unbelievers should be to influence them for good, not to meet your social needs. And then I want to talk about confession. You will need to learn to be honest and humble about this one. Joshua 9, 17. And Joshua said to Achan, My son, give, I pray thee, glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and make confession unto him. And tell me now what thou hast done. Hide it not from me. I want to tell you to own up to your mistakes. You're going to make some. I made a lot. Own up to your mistakes and your weakness. And you will not be thought of less for doing it. Would it have made a difference for Achan and his family, his wife and children, if he would have come forward and confessed a long time before they started drawing straws? If, if Achan would have come up and said, Joshua, I did it. I took the stuff. I think the end would have been different, at least for his wife and children. I really do. Confession is huge. Exposure to God's word and a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit in our lives should bring about honest confession for the times when we fail and we have all failed. Let's be honest. Confession for the times when we fail. Nehemiah 9, chapter th verse 3. And they stood where they were and read from the book of the law and the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And then they spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Now, see, a quarter of the day, it'd be six hours, 12 hours. I won't treat you that way this week, I promise. But they were serious about knowing God's word, and they were serious about confessing all the filthiness and nastiness that had accumulated there. They wanted, they took the time to get rid of it. Years ago, you mentioned Daryl Brubaker. Him and I went to elementary school together, and, and there was a girl in our class, and we had this little joke among us. Said, you know, I bet that girl has never gotten a spanking. I bet she was so good, the teachers all 
bragged on her, and she never did anything wrong, and her name was Elaine Kaufman, and she lives over in Harrisonburg somewhere, I guess, and I, I wish I knew how she turned out, because she was just a blessed little angel, and, but I know she was a sinner. The Bible tells us she was, but that wasn't my life, and that probably wasn't the story of your life. We all are sinners. How hard do we resist the constant downward drag and influence of the ungodly on us? You know, in Hebrews, there's a verse uh, 4 of chapter 12 says, In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of the shedding of your blood. Uh, perhaps a lot of you are familiar with the story, Weeping for Abigail. How many of you all know that story? Uh, you CLP people know it. Read that book. An Anabaptist young lady from the West Coast, and she buys pecans off of my brother. She's still alive and well. Started to make compromises in her spiritual life because of negative peer pressure. And the lady's life ended up in so much pain and tears. In my class at Bible school in separation and nonconformity, that's their required reading, not uh, separated unto God by John C. Wanger. Now, John C. Wanger is the gold standard on separating, on separation and the, but how many 17 and 18 year olds are gonna read that book? But when you read Weeping for Abigail, and it's kind of a girl, girl's book, but you'll see what happens to people when they get saved. It changes their life. The same should be said for you and I. When we get saved, it should change our life. It is so convenient to rationalize. You know, we're not that bad. Uh, it's not that bad, or it doesn't matter, or nobody noticed. We can become so calloused and so desensitized. It was wrong back then, and it's still wrong. But we'll tell ourselves, but this is now. Times have changed. Paul tells Timothy to conduct himself and work as one who in his work is inspected, there is no need for shame. And I always tell my boys, you know, when you're building fence, the fence post and the wire cost the same. And it all depends up to you how you put it up. But I want you to know when somebody rides by the road and says, who built that fence, that I want you to be proud enough to say, I did. Live your Christian life that same way. Do not be ashamed of the way you're building your Christian life. People are watching. They want to know who built your fence. And you have no fingers to point at anybody but yourself. I was writing a midterm exam in the ninth grade at Turner Ashby High School, Dayton, Virginia. It was all discussion questions. The teacher was hard. He had a stony heart. He, he just didn't. He, he was tough, very demanding, I thought. 
I was a young Christian, a new Christian. And I enjoyed my new life with God and a life free from guilt. For the exam, the teacher sent us to some of the different parts of the school to scatter out. And I was sent to the library. And, and this was a long time ago. And that school, I thought, a huge library. Rooms all around with glass doors and study areas and bookcases. And, and um, I got put in one of those rooms, study rooms with the glass doors, me and another girl. But I had not studied to make an approved grade on that exam. And somewhere part through, I got stuck. I couldn't recall the material. Somehow in my corner of that big high school library, I had a battle with my conscience and my integrity. It raged for a short time, I'm sure, but it, to me it seemed like an eternity and I lost. I opened my textbook and got the information I needed and I was off. I was on my way, it was coming back and I was writing. But the girl in my class saw what I did and unbeknown to me, told the teacher. How could I, a new Christian, compromise my integrity, my sacred trust so quickly? And how was I supposed to live with myself now? And why did I think that the score on my exam would nullify my conscience and what I had done? And the teacher came walking in where I was and he was spitting mad. And I don't think he liked Mennonites to start with. And he grabbed my paper and he tore it to shreds and he asked for my parents' phone number. And he gave me a zero for the whole quarter. I feel the shame this evening as keenly as I did 44 years ago. How could I go home? How could I face my parents? And how could I explain to my other Christian young people at that public school what I had done? Such a despicable thing. And to tarnish all of our reputations. And there was the long bus ride home. It was long. And telling my mother what she already knew. And then the principal's office the next day and being re reinstated in the class. That teacher had deleted me from his class roster. He didn't fool around. And then the next point, restitution. I have seldom, if ever, committed the same sin twice when I have made full and complete restitution. It's a sure cure, and it's biblical too. Luke 19, verse 8, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I will restore to him fourfold. For some reason, some of us seems to
to be something that we constantly need to do. You know, I got saved a long time ago, and the Lord has been faithful that he still brings things to my mind that I wish he'd even forgot. But it's been the story of my life is making restitution. But it's the only way to get victory. It's the only way to have peace. And when you can lay your head down on your pillow at night and have peace, restitution is worth it. I am so thankful this evening for God's forgiveness. And I want to say something about children and restitution. And I think that's one reason why our prison system is broken, is that people are punished and not given the chance to make restitution. When people are able to restore or do good or to make right to their victim, to their offender, there can be healing and peace. But just to throw them away and uh, try to rehabilitate the man or lady, it doesn't seem to work the best. Now for children, I think the punishment should equal the crime. And as young parents, it's sometimes difficult to know. We want to be zealous and not spoil our children. And maybe we can be a little uh, reactive and a little heavy-handed. And we've all known families who were brutal with their children. Make sure that the punishment equals the crime. That goes for school teachers, too. Again, I'm thankful for God's forgiveness. Psalm 34:18, the Lord is nigh unto all that are of a broken heart, and save us such as to be of a contrite spirit. Boy, isn't that good news? Psalm 51:17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Oh, the joy of God's forgiveness. Your parents' forgiveness, the school teachers' forgiveness, and how awful for those who've never even experienced or more shed who are not willing to grant it. Hebrews 2:11. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. To think that Jesus, that holy, perfect Son of God, is not ashamed of me. Me, the cheater. Me, the liar. Me, the selfish one. Me, the sinner. And he calls me brother. I want to read a story in closing, about slaves. <clears throat> the story of slaves and the paths they took to freedom. Mary Barber can tell you about slavery firsthand. She remembered the missus and the master, and she could describe the plantation, the stick and mud hut slave house with the bunks, the long nights, the hot days, the hard whips, isolation. Mary Barber could tell you about it. Mary Barber was a slave, but she'd rather tell you about freedom, and that is what she did. In 1935, a worker from the Federal Writers Project knocked on her door in Raleigh, North Carolina. 
Now, the Federal Writers Project was a government-sponsored effort to record the memories of ex-slaves, and over 2,000 were interviewed. These, the final voices, to speak for the 246 years of bondage in America, did so with earthly eloquence. And they told how they were not allowed to read or to write nor purchase or sell merchandise. And they couldn't go to church unless invited. Whippings were common. Hard work was a fact of life, and when the freedom came, they weren't ready. And they wandered roads looking for work, and they were victimized by opponents, and many of them ended back at the same plantation. But all of the memories, the most vivid, the one most often shared was the hour of freedom, the night the Yanks came, the day the master told them they could leave, the morning they got up and went to the big house and found it was empty. And of all the stories of liberation, none were so specific as Mary Barber's. She was 10 years old the night that her father awoke her and led her to the wagon, which could carry them on to freedom. And before you read her words, picture her seated on her porch in Raleigh. And it's 1935, and Mary Barber is over 80 years old. And she rocks as she thinks. Her tiny body is swallowed by the large rocking chair and her frail fingers tremble as she rubs her nose. Old but eager eyes stare out as she is gazing into a land far out on the horizon. And you lean back against the pole and you listen to her story. And one of the first things I remember was my pappy waking me in the middle of the night and he was dressing me in the dark and all the time he's telling me to keep quiet. And one of the twins is hollering some and pappy put his hand over his mouth to keep it quiet. And after we was dressed, we went outside and we peeped around for a minute and then he comes back and he got us. And we snuck out of the house and went along the woods path and Pappy toting one of the twins and holding me by the hand and Mama carrying the other two. And I reckons I will always remember that walk with the bushes slapping on my legs and the wind sighing in the trees and the hoot owls and the whippoorwills hollering at each other from the big trees. And I was half asleep and scared stiff but in a little while, we passed the plum thicket, and there am the mules and mules in the wagons. And there am the quilt in the bottom of the wagon. And on this, they lay the young'uns. And Pappy and Mammy, she gets on the board across the front and drives off down the road. And I was sleepy, but I was scared too. So we rides along, and I listens to Pappy and Mammy talk. And Pappy was telling Mammy about the Yankees coming to their plantation and burning down the corn cribs and the smokehouses, and they destroying everything. And then he says right low that they done took Master Jordan to the rip-raps down nine Norfolk, and that he went and stole the mules and wagon and escaped. Glimmerings of deliverance, longings of liberation, six decades later, the wind still sighs in the trees, and the whippoorwills hoot owls still holler at each other in Mary Barber's memory. That walk to freedom is never forgotten. That path taken from slavery of sin, the liberation of God and forgiveness, should always be very vivid in our memory. Etched in our hearts and minds. It's more than a road, it's a release. The shackles are removed and perhaps for the first time, freedom of conscience is a reality. I will always remember that walk, the night that I walked to the front of the Bank Mennonite Church near Dayton, Virginia, as a young teenager, 
and gave my heart to Jesus and the peace and freedom of guilt, I will never forget it. Do you remember yours? Where were you the night the doors were opened for you? Do you remember the touch and the call of God on your life? Who walked with you the day that you were set free? Can you still see, see the scene? Can you feel the road beneath your feet? I hope so. I hope that permanently planted in your soul is the moment that our Heavenly Father stirred your heart and in the darkness led you down the path to forgiveness and a new life. And it's a memory like no other. Can you still feel that road between your, under your feet? Perhaps you walked up the center aisle or you stood to your feet or you went to your mom and dad's bedroom. Do you still remember that? Is it fresh in your memory? Ex-slaves deserve well the hour of deliverance. You see, when your heavenly father comes to deliver you from your bondage, you don't ask questions. You obey instructions. You take his hand, you walk the path, and you leave your old bondage behind. And you never, never forget it. Mary Barber, the little girl born in slavery in North Carolina, didn't forget it. And I haven't got forgotten it. But to my shame, I must confess there was times when I lost my way. And I lost my way. And yet, worse yet, I took my own way. But as remembering the place and the time where I met Jesus and the vows that I made on bended knee, that I find courage and strength to press on. May God bless you.